You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. This is Jennifer Ashley Tepper, and you're listening to the Untold Stories of Broadway podcast. Today, I am so excited that my guest is Richard Malpey Jr., a writer who I've been obsessed with for many years. You might know Richard Malpey Jr. as lyricist of musicals like Baby and Big, Closer Than Ever, Starting Here, Starting Now, Miss Saigon. He also, in 1978, directed and conceived a little musical called Ain't Misbehavin', which played the Long Acre Theater, and he has some incredible stories about it that we're so excited to share with you. everybody. It's Jennifer Ashley Tepper here with the Untold Stories of Broadway podcast. And I'm here today with the great Richard Malpey Jr. Uh, so Richard is someone who I have worshipped since I was a child as a lyricist, as a director, as a theater artist. Um, I grew up obsessed with many of his musicals, a lot of which I'm going to be asking him about today. And today's episode is about the Longacre Theater. Uh, the Longacre, located at 220 West 48th Street, was built in 1912. Um, it is named because of Longacre Square, which is what Times Square was originally called before they changed the name uh, to fit with the newspaper. Um, one of my favorite facts about the Longacre is one of the earliest facts, which is that Harry Frizee built it. Uh, he was the owner of the Boston Red Sox and known for having sold Babe Ruth's contract to the Yankees to finance his theater ventures. And because of that, there was a rumor that there was a curse on the Longacre. So now the first fact I've given you on this episode is about sports, which is very weird because we'll probably never talk about sports again. Um, so without further ado, I want to welcome Richard Maltby Jr. to the podcast. Hello, Jennifer. Hi, Richard. Thank you for being here. Well, I love the Long Acre. <laughs> uh, I love that you love the Long Acre. Some of my favorite stories I've heard about it were from you, and I'm excited to get to that. Well, when when Atmos Behaven was moving, and it moved on an incredibly fast trajectory, um, uh, <laughs> I was um, taken to 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 uh, pick a theater. Can you imagine? I I, I was taken to eight empty theaters to give given my choice <laughs> of which one and I picked the Longacre which was not a popular theater it's not on 45th street or 44th street it's not a um, in those days walk-in trade meant something so you wanted the theater to be where people walked so that they could walk by and go oh I want to see that and buy a ticket um, the Longacre was you know two blocks off of that and um, so it wasn't a popular theater but it had an oddity. The stage was low, lower than most stages, um, comparably the music box, which is where Jeremy Hansen is playing here, is quite a high stage. This one was low, and as a result, the cast could have access to the audience. This was all about the, the cast playing off the audience, and in fact, with Jung Lee Beatty, we actually added two steps down from the stage with with sort of strip lights on them, um, so that the actors would actually step 
down to kind of make contact with the audience. I wanted the, the actors to be able to really, I wanted the show to make contact with the audience. And so uh, I really liked that. So when I came back and told Manny Eisenberg, who was producing it, that I wanted the Long Acre, there was this big long pause. <laughs> nobody wants the Long Acre. It's like, you know, nobody wants the Long Acre. Aside from other things, it also has a second balcony, which means though it has a thousand seats, you know, 150 of them or something are, are way up high and they're hard to sell. So, um, you know, but I was the director. The show <laughs> was a big success and, uh, and everybody treated me very well, so I got what I wanted. And, uh, and it, it actually, everything about that turned out to be exactly uh, exactly perfect. The show had this tremendous immediacy with the audience. Um, but after a year, the fact that you couldn't sell the second balcony and all of that began to sort of build up. So we moved to the Plymouth Theater where we played for two years and then we played, and we moved to the Belasco and played for another year. So, uh, but the, the Long Acre was, was, was wonderful. <laughs> and, the uh, this show was went into main newspaper went into rehearsal on January first of that year of seventy eight. Uh, it rehearsed for four weeks. It opened on February first, closed on March first. On April first, it went into rehearsal for Broadway. On May first, it opened on Broadway. And on June 1st, it won every award you can win. Yeah. So I just thought that's what, you know, theater is like. <laughs> um, the, the, um, I, I, I should say, what, when we went into rehearsal, we went into rehearsal in the cabaret space at the Manhattan Theater Club, a room that they didn't know what to do with. And, we, you know, they sort of, Lynn Meadow sort of twisted my arm and said, I don't know what to put in there in January. Come on, do that, that show. You, you were all excited about Fats Waller. Why don't you do that show? And so I said, well, okay. I love that. And, um, it led to the longest running show at the Long Acre. It's, is it the longest running yes, show at the yes Long Acre? Oh, my God. How yeah. very, very nice. Um, uh, I'm going to make you rewind. I want to hear more about the beginnings of um, Lynn Meadow. You go way back with her and just the beginnings of your roots as a musical mm -hmm. theater creator. Um, so tell us about what was, um, what was the first Broadway show that you ever saw? How did you start get started in the theater? Well, I don't know. My my father was a, an orchestrator, uh, and uh, he did sort of symphonic orchestrations. And he was brought to New York when I was seven, and uh, so I guess hmm, what did I see first? I think maybe I think I saw Carousel first, and uh, I was sitting in the balcony, and I kept saying when is the carousel coming back? And my mother said, shh, quiet, next scene, next scene. If you remember, the scene after the carousel is about a half an hour long. It's a big love scene, and I'm sitting there bored and bored. Like, when is the carousel coming back? Next scene. Of course, the carousel never comes back. And um, uh, we got to the end of the show, and I thought, oh, that's all. But I wanted to be a set designer. Mm -hmm. So what I loved was not so much the theater as the Ready City Music Hall. I loved the scenery in the Radio City Music Hall, you know, big overblown things. 
And my big excitement was that one year my father got to orchestrate the Easter show. Hmm. So I got to go to the rehearsal. Wow. <laughs> which was so great. Those shows, they, 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 they did four shows and five movies a day, mm-hmm. opening at 9.30 in the morning. And they did it every day. So when there was a changeover, it happened overnight. Wow. The, the full, by the time the, the, uh, uh, the last movie was starting, they were loading the scenery out and loading it back in. We drove in at like four o'clock in the morning at four, the corps de ballet is on stage. At five, the Rockettes are on stage. At six, you know, and he took me underneath the stage where the hydraulic lifts are. And they did that Easter, the big Easter pageant that took place in a big cathedral where everybody, the dancers, they were all nuns. They were all holding these great white lilies. <laughs> And they were so beautiful. And I re- stood in the wings. And as they walked stately like nuns off stage, then tossed the old prop lilies into this basket, <laughs> which were kind of gray and old. Wow. Anyway, I just, uh, I, but I learned something because they, uh, they, did, the, they did a, ru- a dress rehearsal of the whole show that ended at about 9.30. The audience was already coming into the theater when they were clearing the tables. And they padded the show on the first day with some short subjects. They showed the movie, and then they started the show, and they had rewritten it. (laughs) I didn't know you could do that. My little seven-year-old brain went, oh, my God. I just didn't. It wasn't wasn't what they had rehearsed three hours earlier. I thought that was wonderful. So tell me about um, your time at Yale and how did you get started as a lyricist and then as a director? Um, what was that time like and, and your early years in New York? Well, I always wanted to be a, a I, I wanted I wanted to be a set designer. I wanted to you know, which lasted all the way through uh, my second year at Yale when I discovered that I couldn't draw, um, and that was like the end of that. I, my roommate was John Conklin, who was a world class opera dra- uh, designer. Uh, so I was, it was clear I was not in that league. Um, I wanted to do musicals because the scenery is more interesting. And um, so I did, I put on some kind of show in eighth grade. I put on, a, I wrote a musical in my senior year at prep school. Um, and uh, you can find somebody to write the book and you can find somebody to write the music, but nobody wants to write the lyrics. <laughs> so by just process of elimination, I wrote the lyrics. I had no interest in being a lyricist, but I just wrote the lyrics. I then uh, went to Yale because uh, Yale had a theater. Mm -hmm. Harvard didn't, but (laughs) Yale had a theater. and, um, And in my freshman year, I met David Shire. I came to Yale to write musicals. He, came, he was a composer. He came to Yale to write musicals. There was nobody else. I mean, we didn't all that much cotton on to each other immediately, but um, there was no way, there was no way we weren't going to work together because there was nobody else. And uh, so uh, we started, and uh, we wrote two musicals when we were at Yale. And um, the first one, <laughs> we 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 we. Our first attempt, we decided to adapt um, 
What Makes Sammy Run, the Bud Schoberg novel. And uh, we were out trotting along until somebody pointed out that you can't do it unless you have the rights. I didn't know that you didn't have, that you had to get rights. So the next year we picked something in the public domain. So we picked Cyrano de Bergerac, wonderful romantic thing, great. We didn't sort of factor in that we were picking the, <laughs> the period with the most elaborate costumes that ever was. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody is going to wear incredible clothes. We're doing a Yale Dramat with no money, you know. I don't know how we did it. We got somebody, someone, one of the women in the, uh, who was a costume major at the drama school did it. These incredible clothes appeared. Um, and we, and the show was really sumptuous. We had a full orchestra. Mm -hmm. We had a, a New York orchestrator came up to orchestrate it. Uh, had five huge sets. Um, it was it was a big deal. And we also decided to tour it because in the Cole Porter days, the, um, uh, the shows would, 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 uh, would tour after they were done. At, they were done at the Schubert Theater and then they would tour. So we thought, well, of course we'll do that. And we got sort of picked up. And so we did it at the, <laughs> the Stratford Shakespeare Festival Theater because the Yale Club of Fairfield County decided to sponsor it. And we brought it to New York um, and played at the Phoenix Theater for one night. It was all fine. I was the treasurer of That's the dramatic. I didn't even know that. And oh, I, yeah. No, I, 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 was, I was the treasurer, and, and uh, I had it all worked out, except that I didn't factor in that stagehands have to get paid. You know, in the theater, um, in, in college, you just stay up all night. <laughs> right, right. Um, so... Uh, Years later, I met Hal Prince, and I, I and he said, "You know, I I saw Cyrano at the." And I said, "You did? Who? Why <laughs> on earth did you do that?" He said, "Oh, we were all there. Everyone in New York was there." I said, "You you were?" He said, "Yes. I mean, a show from Yale was coming into the Phoenix Theater. Of course, we were going to go and see it." I said, "Well, why didn't anybody say anything to us? <laughs> we didn't hear anything." For people who don't know the Phoenix, it's a fascinating theater. It's where the Golden Apple started before it moved to the Alvin, which is my, you know, favorite Phoenix fact. But um, it was like a beloved off-Broadway theater where lots of shows played. Um, and It, on it was Third a little Avenue. more than an off-Broadway theater. It's a yeah. big, it was a full-size Broadway house. Yeah, they did shows sometimes that I think campaigned to be considered Broadway and were. Yes, and, and it was uh, um, uh, T. Edward Hamilton and uh, I can't remember the name of the, um, of his partner, um, um decided to do a sort of repertory theater mm -hmm. and they produced Phoenix a Rest. sizable number of plays um, starting a whole bunch of careers. Mm -hmm. um, really, really interesting work. Yeah. Um, um, and so Cyrano, I know there's like a recording that I've heard, but there are songs from that that have ended up in other projects of yours. So what songs from that? David and I recycle <laughs> <laughs> everything. Um, Autumn, Yeah. which is one of the first songs we... Ever. The first really good song that we wrote, the first moment that I really knew David was a writer. Um, um, Barbara Streisand recorded that, and, um, and that sort of... Do you want to tell us how that happened? Because it's a great story. Well, um, oh, um, when we came to New York, um, uh, 
I can't exactly remember the, this, the sequence of events, but um, Peter Daniels, who was um, Barbara's um, arranger, who did all those the arrangements for those early albums, um, heard some of our songs somewhere and uh, got to know David. And um, he kept putting these songs in front of Barbara. Mm -hmm. um, you, that's what you do with Barbara. You don't tell her you should... You, you don't ask her to do a song. You place it on the piano, and 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 just don't <laughs> don't say it's there until she says, "What's that?" Oh, this is not for you, Barbara. It's not for you. I'm, what do you mean it's not for me? <laughs> What's for a man? Oh, I want to hear it. Um, so uh, that that's what he what he did with uh, with Autumn, uh, which we always thought was going to be a song for a man, um, and uh, he he then. Uh, went on to be uh, the pianist for the for the new musical Funny Girl that was coming in, and then assistant conductor, and then he ended up conducting about 100 performances of the show, mm -hmm. which was fun. So you're these Yale students who've written this song that Barbara Streisand's recorded, and you've moved to New York, um, and you're writing musicals together. What were the first shows that you and David wrote together um, that happened after college? Well... Um, they, we did a review called Graham Crackers that was at the upstairs at the downstairs. Uh, Ronnie Graham, who was the star of New Faces of 52, did a, um, was doing a show and looking for people. And we happened to have some songs. Crossword Puzzle is from that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Autumn is in it. Um, you can hear Autumn and Crossword Puzzle on any recording of Starting Here, Starting Now. That was a plug for one of my favorite musicals. Cool. <laughs> cool. I like and, uh, that. It's still out there. Somebody just called up and said they wanted to do a big production of it in um, Toronto. Yeah, cool. I said, I yes. That's great. I, said, <laughs> I can't see the Statue of Liberty without singing Crossword Puzzle, uh, so it sticks with us all. Well, that's good. That's good. So, um, you know, we, we did that. Ronnie was... in. Incredible. He was a manic genius. And he would he would improvise a sketch, just improvise it, and it would be flawless. It would be just perfect. And we were laughing and he said, Ronnie, you just got that's that let's write that down. And he would say, Write what down? <laughs> <laughs> had no memory of oh. what he had just done. And uh, I mean I kept trying to be a stenographer was the, before you had little recording things in your hands. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, can you also what was upstairs at the downstairs like for people who didn't know it? <clears throat> well, there were a series of uh, sort of chic supper clubs that did after dinner um, uh, shows. Mm -hmm. the, the, there were a lot number of people who did them. Bill. Uh, um, Ben Bagley was one, but sort of the most chic, the most epicene of them all was Julius Monk. Mm -hmm. He had this club for himself called the Upstairs or the Downstairs. He also then moved on to the Plaza Hotel and did a show called Plaza Nine that ran for you know ten or fifteen years. Mm -hmm. The people were always in tuxedos. The women were always in evening gowns, and it was all very very chic. Mm -hmm. Songs like Fifth Avenue buses never go out alone. <laughs> that sort of that that sort of comedy. Um, what we played we played a song for him about 
David's first brownstone in New York. And Julia said, no, 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 David, we don't, we don't write, we don't do songs about first brownstones. We do songs about the doorknobs on brownstones. <laughs> Wow. But they were very chic, and and uh -huh. and and a lot of really wonderful uh, uh, young performers played there. And uh, he was doing this one show at the, the upstairs of the downstairs. Pat Stanley was in it, mm -hmm. and From Goldilocks and Elaine Hanley, who had married Pat Stanley's husband. Oh gosh! <laughs> so she was Pat Stanley. It was. No, no, it was the other way around. It was Elaine Hanley and Pat Stanley Hanley. That was amazing. They, they, were, they were in it. Um, um, uh, who else was in it? There was a guy who went into um, MASH. Um, whose name? I will, everybody's name I just can't you know, <laughs> no, you're pull great. out. At, at um, so tell me about, because I'm so curious, I always want to know about it, The Sap of Life, which um, I was in a theater all summer that was like a block away from where you guys played, and I would always go, that's where The Sap of Life played, right near Sheridan Square. It's true. It's true. Um, David and I wrote a second show at Yale, and we formed a, a kind of a, a um, you know, a real connection with people. Um, there was a wonderful director named Bill Francisco who went on to teach at Wesleyan and where his prime student was Lynn manuel So yeah, there you know, go. I consider that I'm responsible for Lynn. <laughs> um, um, he was a director. A couple of people wanted to be producers. Um, we wrote this show that was based upon, um, there was a wonderful book by John Cheever called The Wapshot Chronicles. I picked it up and read the blurb on the back. And I thought, that is a really good story for a musical. I then read the book. The story in the book is not the story on the back of the book. So I thought, okay, we'll just write the, we'll, we'll extrapolate a story from the back cover of the Wapshot Chronicles. And then we don't have to pay any royalty. <laughs> Um, because uh, right, we're you not learned using, about getting right. Not you. Well, point. yes, we, we had learned by then. So, so we did it, and um, um, the Fantastics had just opened the year before. So the idea of doing a small show, you know, with real intensity was was really good. We took it to Williamstown and tried it out. We we did about twenty five backers auditions in people's living rooms. To raise $25,000, which is what you had to do to, you know, to, to get the show. So it was $1,000 here and $500 there and $2,500 maybe here. Um, and, uh, and we did it. And um, that we, we did, tried it at Williamstown. Then we brought it into New York. We had a different cast. It was not as good as the Williamstown cast um, when we moved. It, um, it only ran for six weeks. It didn't get terribly good reviews. Um, got one rave review, but a bunch of sort of okay reviews. But from our point of view, um, uh, in the second week, Steve Sondheim came to see it. And the next week he came back and brought Jerry Robbins. And the next week he came back and brought Hal Prince and Leonard Bernstein. <laughs> and uh, somebody just called us up recently at, at a college someplace, a, a college, in, uh, well, not someplace, it's Virginia Tech, mm -hmm. um, and they had wanted to do a concert version of the show. 
Nobody has asked us to do this show. It, there isn't even a, a legitimate recording of it. We did record the score, but it, it allowed me to listen to the score again. The lyrics are, there are a few really good lyrics, but mostly they're just sort of okay. But the score <laughs> is breathtaking. I mean, no wonder Steve and all these people went bonkers for it. It was two pianos and a percussionist. Um, and it was, it was thrilling. I, I, I had sort of forgotten how completely wonderful it, it was. There's that um, song, Love of Your Life, that is mm -hmm. as good as anything from a 60s musical. It's so like sure. poppy. It's so great. Um, how? So did you feel like um, at that point, were you already working on other shows? Um, were there things in the pipeline at that point? Well, we worked on um, a show called, uh, an adaptation of Rumor Garden's novel, The River, which was um, a, 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 a difficult show. It, had a, it was mo mostly a kind of a, a, a tone poem. It didn't have a lot of story, but for some reason, I loved the movie, and uh, the movie was by Jean Renoir. It was a beautiful sort of evocative piece about an English family in India. Why we would choose this? What what did we know about <laughs> India? What did we know about India? What did we know about English families living in India? Um, but we got pretty pretty cl uh, close to it, um, um, and then we did not get the rights from uh, Rumor Garden, who wrote the novel. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and, um, we were working on another, uh, project that was, uh, about, uh, the, about John Reed, the, the main, the, the only American who was buried in the Kremlin wall, mm -hmm. uh, the subject of the movie Reds that, uh, um, and we couldn't crack the story, but it was just this fabulous story about the radicals in in Greenwich Village before the First World War, mm -hmm. in the years leading up to 1913 or whatever it was. Um, so much passion, so much vision, for so much uh, uh, um, uh, energy to, to, to create a new world. Um, and of course we were doing this in the 60s where it had a certain amount of uh, contemporary uh, resonance. Mm -hmm. um, so um, so we, were, we were doing that. When the movie came out, uh, I saw it, and the, uh, Warren Beatty had hired Trevor Griffiths, the really wonderful English uh, playwright, and he wrote an opening scene. And, and it's so good, I thought, why didn't we think of it? Um, uh, Warren Beatty is, is a kind of, uh, John Reed was a kind of a charismatic young man, very, very attractive. And, um, and he's giving speeches all over the place. And he goes to, I think, Portland, Oregon. And this young woman wants to interview him. Well, he knows what that means. <laughs> If a young woman wants to interview him, he's going to have her. And this scene goes on, and slowly he catches on that she wants to interview him. <laughs> she wants to interview him because of the passion of his politics and everything else. Slowly he settles down and says, oh, <laughs> realizes he's going to spend the night 
talking to this woman. And then in the morning, she goes off to publish her story. Um, they then meet again in New York. But it's, it's just a great, great scene. Movie, yeah. It's the great opening because you know it's going to be one scene that it turns out to be something else. And I thought, I wish we had been smart enough to think of that scene. <laughs> well, what I love about so many of those projects that you were working on is that in addition to the book musicals that you and David eventually ended up having, you know, produced Baby and Big and all the others, um, all of these shows ended up with material that um, a lot of them are in starting here, starting now or closer than ever, which um, the next question I'm going to ask you for this is background on. But, you know, I was obsessed with the starting here, starting now and closer than ever cast recordings and wanted to learn more about those songs. And when I found out that Pleased With Myself, which is an amazing song from starting here, starting now, was from a musical called How Do You Do I Love You? Of course, I tried to dig into what that was and became very much in love with that show, which um, I'm going to... You should be committed. <laughs> Richard, I'm telling you, there's there's so much in that show that, like, when I first heard the recording from the out-of-town tryouts, um, you know, it's so funny, and it so satirizes the social mores of, of that time. Um, it's like a musical about computer dating from the 60s. I like, how know. did you come up with that? Well, it was Michael ben- Michael uh, Stewart's uh, idea. and um, But him, him, the computer he was talking about was those computers who that filled up entire rooms in right. um in insurance companies mm-hmm. she, this woman decided that she was going to make use of the database in an insurance company to find the most appealing eligible men in new york because she wanted to find a husband i mean not exactly the most uh, feminist drive for a plot, but uh, that was, you know. It manages to satirize. So, you know, the opening or maybe the second number, the house is in Larchmont. It managed to satirize what was going on and why women, you know, might go on that mm-hmm. journey as well as it was, you know, of its time. Well, um, I think I think it's more satirical now than it was <laughs> when we wrote it. Um, but, we, you know, we, we were doing a send-up of, of, of the... Um, uh, the things that women had to do in order to get, leave, lead interesting lives. I mean, how they had to get jobs, which were manipulative things to get a husband, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and the life that they were looking towards, like houses in Larchmont. I mean, the 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 the, the shining goal for them was something that now we would just consider so limited and so but that's what women in the 50s and 60s um that's what 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 that was the goal Mm -hmm. that's why women had so many nervous breakdowns (laughs) (laughs) they'd go they'd go out and they'd have this happy life with children and everything and they'd be in this house and and one day they just have a breakdown in the middle of the street. Well, I think that's all in the musical in a pretty ahead-of-its-time way. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Untold Stories of Broadway podcast with our guest, Richard Malpe Jr. Stay tuned for part two, featuring more stories about the Long Acre Theater. Thank you to our producer, Dory Berenstein, and my publishers of The Untold Stories of Broadway, Brisa Trincaro and Roberta Pereira, Zach Zadek for that theme music. And thank you to all of you for listening to the podcast. You can buy The Untold Stories in book version on Amazon.com. 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.